Hey, man, so good to be here. I, I want to thank uh, Pastor Josh and Jess just for having us here. And it's so cool to be here and get to see what God is doing in Michigan. I, I've been to Grand Rapids before, but it was years ago. It's awesome to be back and just kind of see what God is doing in your community. I come, like he said, from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is just as exciting as it sounds. And uh, I have family there. My, uh, my, my wife, we've been married for 20 years, celebrated 20 years of marriage in uh, August. Have five kids. Yep, five kids. Two dogs, eight chickens. So y'all pray for me. I, I need all the help I can get. Just trying to kind of hold down the fort. Love Jesus. Love my family. Pastor at church. No big deal. Just a little bit going on in my life. But I'm happy to be here. Honestly, it's been great to be here and just kind of get to see what's happening in the area, what God is doing, and what God's doing through Vertical. It's so awesome how you guys are serving and loving your community. I love a church that's generous. I love a church that invests in the community. I think the church ought to make a difference in the community. There's too many churches where basically it's about a little Christian club and people are in a little holy huddle and there's nobody, you know, it's like people from the outside, you know, whenever there's a huddle, you ever seen a huddle, you get people all huddled up. What, what, what does everybody outside the huddle see? Everybody's butts. Yeah. That's it. And, and that's a lot of what the church is. Like nobody gets to see the generosity, the love of Christ. And that's what I love about you is what you're serving and giving into your community. The one for one. That's so cool. What you're doing with foster kids. Amazing what you're doing here. And that's kind of what I want to piggyback off of. Just the generous church that you are. Pastor Josh was telling me about what's going to happen next month with your legacy offering and just what you guys do to love and serve your community. And I want to talk about how our God is a God of abundance and generosity for the mission of God. How many of you know God has a mission? I don't know if you've thought about that before, but God has a mission for you. You're not just here just to get your ticket punched for heaven so that one day when you die, you go up instead of down. There's more to it than that. If God was just interested in that, then why are we still here? You're here because God has a mission. God has a plan. I believe this, that wherever you find yourself in your home, in your business, at your job, wherever it is that you are, you were sent there by God. You're not just there by accident. You don't just go to the same coffee place every day because you like that coffee. What if you were sent there for a reason to impact people? I believe if we as followers of Christ start seeing our lives through the lens of mission instead of through the lens of convenience and comfort, it changes everything. And that's what I love about your church is you're doing that. That's what generosity is all about. And so when we talk about generosity, we're talking about the abundance of God for the mission of God, because God has a mission, and then he resources us for that mission. We're going to look at two texts today. So if you have a Bible, if you want to follow along on your phone, two texts I want to point you to, Acts chapter 2, and then 1 John chapter 4. Acts 2 and 1 John chapter 4. In Acts chapter 2, the church has just exploded onto the scene. If you remember what happens in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. If you remember this, he's poured out in an upper room, it says. Uh, tongues of fire appear over uh, the, the followers of Christ. They peer over their head. They start speaking in languages that they had never learned before. They spill out into the streets. They start speaking this way. And people from all over the place are freaking out because these guys are speaking in languages that were like their home language, but these guys had never learned this before. So they're kind of like, what's 
going on. And then Peter steps up in Acts chapter 2 and he preaches a sermon. He preaches the gospel. And it says that 3,000 men, there were way more than that, but they just counted the men. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day. So the church explodes onto the scene just before there is no church. And now there is a church. And so the church explodes onto the scene. And in Acts chapter 2, at the end, we get a little description of kind of how that church functioned, sort of what made that church special and what got people's attention. And I want you to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We'll probably read through, let's see, verse 47. It says this, they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45 is fascinating. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And look at this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. The first church was marked by the spirit of radical generosity. I don't know if you caught that in there, but they were selling homes and possessions so they could give to anyone who had need. Just stop and think about that for a second. This was in a time where people didn't have big fat savings accounts. You didn't have a 401k or a 403b. You didn't have a financial advisor. You had your land. You had your home. That was all you had to live on. For somebody to sell their home, for somebody to sell their land was a serious deal. And yet it was this kind of radical generosity, people selling homes and land to be able to give to those who had need. This kind of generosity is what marked the first church. It's what got people's attention, people from outside Christianity, this sort of knockoff Jewish religion that people didn't exactly know what to make of. They started paying attention to it because there was radical generosity. It was said of the first church that whenever plague would sweep through a city, everybody would leave the city because they didn't want to get sick. They didn't want to die, but the Christians would stay back. Instead of leaving, they would press in. They would be the ones left behind to care for the poor, to care for the sick, the dying, the hurting, even many of them dying themselves. But it was that kind of radical generosity and selflessness that got people's attention. People started paying attention to what they were doing. Go, wow, what's happening here? What is this kind of love? What is this kind of generosity that these people have? What enables them to do this? I just saw an, an article, a video on a, a Reddit page of a pastor in Hong Kong. He's a Chinese pastor. If you don't know what's going on in Hong Kong right now, there are violent protests happening daily. And um, this pastor is a Chinese pastor. Pastors a small church there. And he and his, his church are putting on yellow vests and, and shirts, and they're going out into the city, and they're going to where the protests are most violent. And they're standing, they're positioning themselves in between the protesters and the police <coughs> because many of these protesters are young kids. They're teenagers. <coughs> and so they're, they're positioning themselves in between the police and the protesters, and they're trying to de-escalate the tension and the violence in the situation. They're, they're, they're quite literally saying as the police come in to break up the protest, they're saying, beat us, don't beat them. They've been beaten, they've been pepper sprayed, they have suffered in place of the people who are protesting. 
This is incredible. And they're not there just to serve the protesters. They're serving both the police and the protesters. And people can't wrap their minds around this. If you read this Reddit page, you'll find people on there saying, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in God. I grew up in church, but I lost my faith in God. But what these people are doing is blowing my mind. This is the kind of Christianity that I think the world could get behind. What is that? It's radical generosity, selflessness, sacrifice. I have a feeling that if there were a group of Christians today, I don't care where they are, call it Grand Rapids, Harlem, wherever you are, if we could get together with that kind of selfless, sacrificial, radical generosity, it gets people's attention. It's what says to people, wow, something must be happening there. And I, I think we all want to be people of generosity. I want generosity, not just financially. You go, what are we talking about, money? Yeah, we are talking about money. But we're also talking about being generous with your time, being generous relationally, like generous in all categories of life. I want to be a generous person in this way, but how do I do it? And what motivated the early church to this kind of radical generosity? I believe it was their view of God. I believe it was the way they saw God, the generosity that they saw in Christ extended toward them was what they reflected out to other people. Often we think that if we want to change in life, we need to change our behaviors. Unfortunately, I think the church has not done a great job of explaining how real change works. Often when people come to church, what they end up hearing is a list of things that they have to be and do in order to make God happy. That's not what that's not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world says, here's the series or the list of things you got to do in order to get into heaven or to make God happy or to, or to you know, live a better life, whatever it might be. Christianity doesn't function like that. It doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, it gets taught that way, but it doesn't work that way. If you want to change, if you want to be more generous, you don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, white knuckle, I got to be more generous today. I got to love my wife more today. I got to be kinder to people today. Can I tell you that doesn't work? Just trying to be a better person doesn't make you a better person. And having a list of things that you ought to do to be more generous or to be more loving might help mitigate, you know, some of the selfish tendencies that you have for a little bit, but it won't change who you are fundamentally. Fundamental change, hear this, fundamental change doesn't begin from the outside in. It starts inside out. You have to change your heart. And so if you want to change what's going on on the inside, you have to change what you find to be most beautiful. Here's why. Because the heart follows what it desires. The reason why we do the things we do, the reason we're rude, the reason we're selfish, the reason we're short-tempered, ultimately in the moment is because we want to be. We, we found that anger works. We found that it just is a reaction that we kind of go to. We, we trust it more than doing things God's way. We have a view of life that says this is the way things ought to be. You want to change things, you start with your heart. You start with what you desire most. You want to follow God, you find him to be more beautiful than anything else, and you'll start to become more like Christ. It's amazing how it works. You don't, you don't sit back and go, okay, be more like Jesus. Be kinder. Be more loving. Be generous. You just start to find Christ more beautiful, and everything will change. I, and this is my life. I grew up in church. I grew up understanding Christianity, but I was nothing like Jesus. My marriage was falling apart. I was addicted to pornography. I, I, I was working in a church, but living a hypocritical life. I thought I loved Jesus. I had no idea. I loved me. And whenever I found out that I was a sinner, 
even as good as I had been, even as nice as or as all the rules that I had kept for my whole life, never went out, never partied, never drank, never smoked, never did anything that, you know, they say you shouldn't do, never did drugs, anything like that, cussed a little bit here and there, but tried to avoid just about everything else bad, right? That was my sort of way of thinking about things. And, 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 I, and yet I was as selfish as I could ever be. It wasn't until I, I, I started seeing Jesus for who he really was that I started to change and my life was truly transformed. You ask people that knew me 10 years ago, I wasn't a pleasant person to be around. What happened? I saw God for who he was. What happened with the early church? They saw God for who he really was. When you see God for who he is, it changes you. You, don't, you, you never see anybody run into Jesus in the New Testament. Read it sometime. Nobody ever meets Jesus and goes, huh, okay, that was interesting. Moving on. Like that never happens. People get angry or they fall in love with him. But there's no in between. And too much of Christianity today is that, that whole thing. Huh. Interesting. Okay, that was a nice time at church. Maybe I'll go back in a month. Do we really see Jesus if that's who he is to us? So what we want to do is get a, a real view of who God is. Who is God in his nature? What is he like? And that's what I think the early church does. what motivated them for generosity. And so for a second this morning, what I want to do is we're going to go deep just for a second and thinking about who God is. I'm going to do a little history here, and this may be boring to some of you, but I think if you'll just hang with me, think with me, and reason with me for a second, this may impact how you see God, all right? So we want to talk about who God is in his nature. And to do that, I want to walk you back to something that happened in the fourth century. Uh, no, not the fourth century. It would be the fifth century. So 400 AD, um, there was a church council. It was essentially a council that was gathered to answer a question, an argument between two guys. It's an important argument. One guy was named Arius, and the other guy was named Athanasius. And they were arguing about the nature of God, who God is, what is God like. Arius had said that God is absolute. God is one. There is only one God, and he's, he, he's indivisible. He can't be divided. He's absolute in every quality that he has. He's also immutable, meaning he doesn't change. He can't be affected from the outside. God is absolute. Now, because Arius believed this, he had reasoned that Jesus would be God's first creation, that Jesus is not God himself, not made of the same substance as God, and is not eternal like God is in the sense that he has always been, but that God made him and formed him as God's first creation, worthy of worship, worthy of praise. Oh, we ought to worship Jesus, but he's just not made out of the same thing that God is because God is absolute. He can't be divided. There can't be more than one. So because of that Arius reason that Jesus is God's first creation. Athanasius came from another perspective and he said, no, Jesus is God. He's part of what's called the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perhaps you've heard of that doctrine before, the the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, this may be interesting to you, but the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, for that matter. But the church fathers reasoned that there was a Trinity by reading Scripture. The idea is implied, even though the word isn't there. Now, why does this matter, and why are we talking about this? Because whether God is triune or whether God is one has huge implications in who God is and what God's nature is like. For instance... If Arius is right and God is only one, then God's nature 
would not be love. God could be power. He could be, he could be truth, but he would not be love. He's absolute, but he couldn't be love. Why? Because you can't love if you're alone. You couldn't be love alone. It takes someone else or something else to love for there to be love present. And if God has existed from all eternity and there's only one God, there's just one, then he might be power and he might be truth. He might be absoluteness, but he isn't love because you need somebody else to love. How many of you have ever seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks where he's stranded on a desert island? You know this movie? It's a great movie. And you remember when he's stranded on the desert island, he's lonely, and so he has a friend there that he creates? What's the name of his friend? Yeah, uh, Wilson. Best part of the movie, the volleyball with the bloody handprint on it that he turns into like his friend. Anybody else cry whenever Wilson, you know, Wilson's like sailing off into the water. He loses Wilson. I gotta, I'm not going to lie. I shed a tear in the theater whenever Tom Hanks lost Wilson. I was devastated, and it's a volleyball. Why? Why does he create Wilson? Because he's lonely, and he needs someone to love. Because it's not enough just to be by yourself in love. You have to have someone to love, something to love if you're going to experience love. Look at 1 John chapter 4. I told you we're going to read from 1 John. I want you to read this. 1 John chapter 4. This is what John the Apostle writes. And look what he says. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. He's talking about that same kind of radical love and generosity that we just saw in the church. He says, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves, this is powerful, look at this, everybody who loves has been born of God, and look at this, knows God. In other words, they have a correct view of God. They see God for who he is. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. John's making a huge statement here when he says, God is love. It's in direct contradiction to what Arius taught, that God is absolute. God is one. God is power. That may make God powerful, but it would not make God love. Athanasius came along and he said, no, God is love. And we can see this by reading scripture because there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. What, is he, what does that mean? It means that from all eternity, all eternity, the very fountain of life is a triune community of love, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, meaning the ultimate reality of the universe before there was a universe, before there were mountains, before there was sky, before there was you and I, before there was anything here, there was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit loving each other in a perfect relationship. What does this mean? It means that God's fundamental nature is not power. It is love. Why does this matter? Because generosity is not something God does. It's who he is. He doesn't know how to do or be anything but generous love. From all eternity, God the Father has been loving God the Son, and God the Son has been loving God the Father, and God the Father and God the Son have been loving God the Spirit. They've been in loving community forever. That's who they are. So God didn't make human beings because he was lonely and he needed some friends and he wanted some people to worship him. It's not a Tom Hanks and Wilson situation. Often that's how we posit God. Oh, God made us because he wanted some friends. God didn't need you any more than you need a housefly. 
God made us not because he needed us out of some need that he had in himself. Why did he make us then? Because God wanted to share the love that he had with Father, Son, and Spirit with us. He invites us in to the loving relationship that he has known from all eternity. Even though we offer him nothing, we benefit him in no way whatsoever. He invites us into the dance of his love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, why does this matter? Because this means that God is generous in the most profound way. God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, be generous today. Let's love them today. I know they're difficult to love, but we're going to love them. Come on, Jesus. Let's, let's just determine again to love humanity one more time. I know it was a tough day yesterday. I know they got in a fight again. I know there's wars. I know there's famine. I know the whole thing's falling apart, but let's love them again. Come on, let's do it. He doesn't have to do that. Why? Because it's his very nature to love and to be generous. And I believe the first church had a glimpse of this. How? Because they had just seen Jesus die. As Paul would write later in Romans chapter 8, he said, if God would not spare his own son, like if he's willing to go that far, if he's willing to give that much, then how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? If you could grasp the generosity of God, if you could just grasp the concept that God stepped out of heaven and took on human flesh so that he could become like one of us, Jesus didn't just appear as a human, he is a human. I don't know if you realize that, that God has become a man. He didn't move back to heaven and become God again. He's still a man seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's incredible to think about. We don't even understand what that means, that God would become one of us, how significant that is. And yet that's the depth of his love. We have no idea how significant it is that he would stretch out his arms and die on a cross for us. And yet that's the generosity that our Father has for us. So if God loves us in this way, when we see God extending grace and love and generosity to us, then what happens to us? We start extending generosity to others. There's a verse in the Psalms that says, of people who worshiped other gods, it says that they become like the gods they worship. This is interesting because neuroscience is coming along and proving this. Right now, the way you view God is the way you reflect God, mirror God to others. Have you ever seen those Westboro Baptist people who stand outside of, you know, stadiums and events and they hold up signs that say God hates you and other horrible things? Have you ever seen those people protesting everything, angry about everything? Why do they do that? Because that's the God they serve. They serve an angry, judgmental, disappointed, slightly ticked off God all the time. That's the God that they view. That's the God that they see. So what do they look like? They look like the God they worship. Do you know you do the same thing? We worship gods of success, achievement, fame, acclaim, whatever it might be. We look like the God we worship. So as we see God being more generous to us, then what happens? We become more generous. We take on his nature, his attributes. You want to become like Christ, spend time with Christ. Spend time thinking about who he is and what he's done for you. And it will change you. You become a different person. So I want to talk today, just lastly, about three ways, kind of three marks of a generous heart. What does generosity 
look like? And I got three quick thoughts for you, and then I'll get you out of here, and we'll wrap this thing up. Three thoughts, three marks of a generous heart. This is where we're going to get practical. We've gone philosophical. We've kind of tried to go deep. Now we're going to try to get a little bit practical, okay? Three thoughts. Generous heart. How, how do I know what generosity looks like? First is this. I trust my source over my circumstances. If you're taking notes, write this down. I trust my source over my circumstances. All of us tend to view God on a scale. On one side, we view God through the lens of scarcity. There's only so much to go around. On the other side, you have an opportunity to view God through the lens of abundance, God's eternal abundance. When we think about trusting our source over our circumstances, I think about some ministries that we support at Church on the Move, my home church. We support some missionaries who do an amazing work. I don't know if you guys support anybody like this, but we, we support a missionary who, they, they, they travel around and they, they plant water wells. They dig water wells in communities that don't have access to clean drinking water. I don't know if you think about this, but there are loads of communities all around the world, they don't have access to clean drinking water. Something that we, I mean, there are bottles of water all over the place in this room, and we don't even like take into account how significant that is that we can just have access to water. But there are places all over the world that don't. And so their reality is you wake up in a village one morning and you got to go find water for your family. So I want you to envision, let me grab that from you, Josh. I want you to envision that this is your, your bucket for the day. Like this is where you, this is the bucket that you take to get water. And so maybe the nearest water source for you is five miles away. And I want you to imagine that you're walking. It's early in the morning, and you're going, and you've walked the five miles. You get there. You fill up your bucket with water, and this is your water for the day. To cook, to clean, to drink, whatever it is, this is your water for you and your family. This is reality for a lot of people. And so you have your water, and you're, you're walking back to your village. It was a five-mile hike there. You're on mile nine. You're just a mile away from your village, and you're, you're heading back, and maybe you could even see your village off in the distance, and coming toward you is somebody else from your village. You recognize them. You know that they're near you, and so they're walking towards you, and you're carrying your water. You know you're doing everything you can to keep it from spilling, trying to keep it just as still as possible, holding on to it because that water is precious, and I want you to imagine that as they're walking to you, they stop, and they go, oh, I'm thirsty. Do you mind if I have a drink? How are you going to respond? Well, there's a, there's a puddle about four miles that direction. Good luck. Keep going. You'll, you'll get there eventually. It's just right, right over there. But you're not saying, here, have some of my water. Why? Because you only have so much. This is all I have for the day. And it's not that I don't want to be generous. It's not that I don't care about you. It's not even that I don't love you. It's that this is for my kids. This is for my family, and I have to hold on to this today because it's all I've got. What is this? This is called a scarcity mindset. There's only so much. Now, I want you to envision it's a hot summer day. I don't know how hot it gets here. It gets hot in Oklahoma, humid, hot, and uh, I want you to imagine that you're out on your front porch. We've got, we've got plants on our front porch and uh, I want you to imagine that you've just got a hose out on your front porch. My wife, she goes out there every morning with a hose like this. She turns on the faucet. Water starts coming out. Think about how much water we have that we can just pour it on the ground. And you're just out there watering your plants. You've turned the faucet on, and it's just going to keep coming out until you go over and turn that faucet off. Think about that. You could leave it on all day, all night. It'll just keep coming out. Your water bill might go up, but the water just keeps coming out. 
And so I want you to imagine that you're just standing there watering your plants and somebody comes running down the street and they're hot and they're sweaty and they've been running and whatever. And so they come down the street and they come over and they go, oh, I'm exhausted. My house is still a ways away. I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink? How do you respond? Sure. It's no big deal. It's nothing to you. Why? Because this water just keeps coming out of this hose forever. I'm connected to an infinite source. You wonder why you're not generous. It's because the way you see the world is through the lens of scarcity. And so many of us, we don't see ourselves as being connected to an infinite source, to an abundant God. We see the world like there's only so much to go around. This is what I have, and I would love to give to the church, and I'd love to give to that, you know, that mission over there or that orphan thing that's going on there or whatever's happening. Like I would love to help people, but I can't because this is my bucket. This is all I have, and I would love to help you, but I just can't do it. What needs to happen? We've got to stop seeing our world and our lives and the resources of money and time and relationship. We've got to stop seeing that through the lens of scarcity, and we've got to start seeing it through the lens of abundance. No, I, I, I don't have so little. I have so much because I'm connected to an infinite God who made everything in the universe, and if he knows how to get me just a little, he can get me more. So I'll be generous when he says give. I'll sow into other people when he says do that. When he says spend time with them or send that text or love, even though you're not getting much in return, I'll keep doing that because I'm connected to an infinite supply. Can I get an amen? That's what it is to see yourself being connected to a source rather than your circumstance through the lens of scarcity. Second mark of a generous heart is that you choose celebration over criticism. It's an interesting cultural undercurrent. I've watched this increase so much in like maybe the last 10 years. There's just this undercurrent of criticism towards anybody who's successful in life. If I see, you know, a car review online for a really nice car, one that I can't afford, but I see it, and I'm just like, wow, that's a great car. If you ever read the reviews, immediately you're going to see, must be nice. Wouldn't it be nice if I had that? There's this just little hint of criticism that says you have something nice and, and you shouldn't. I should have it. I, I, I don't know why I, there was there was a restaurant that opened in our city that, you know, I don't know, it was an, on the nicer side. And people were angry about it because it wasn't cheap enough for them. Look, it's their business if they want to open a restaurant. What's it to you if it's more than what you could spend? There, there are other restaurants that have different price points. But we're angry if somebody else has something that we don't have. And there's all this like kind of class warfare stuff going on sort of underneath the surface. And listen, trust me, I, I, I am not saying that there aren't people out there that are using money incorrectly or that are hoarding money to themselves and that are, you know, they, they just have way like this, just living this crazy, lavish, excessive, over-the-top lifestyle. I get that. And I think that's gross like you do. But what's happening in our culture is there's this whole thing that says, no, you shouldn't have. And because you have, and this is the problem. Basically, what we're saying is that because you have so much, I can't have anything. And it's a scarcity mindset. What, why, what is that? Because we believe there's only so much to go around. And if you get some, it means I don't get any. So if you get that promotion, I'm not going to get that promotion. I can't celebrate with you when God blesses you. You know that the scripture says that God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, on the just and unjust? God is a good God pouring out blessings on people that you don't think deserve them. 
And God wants us to celebrate his goodness when he blesses people that we don't think deserve to be blessed and when he blesses us. An abundance mindset says, I serve a God who's big enough to bless you and who's big enough to bless me. So I don't have to be angry or upset whenever somebody else gets the promotion that I thought was set aside for me. I don't have to be upset whenever somebody else gets what I thought was coming to me because I recognize I serve a God who's big enough to bless all of us. That's an abundance mindset. Unfortunately, so many of us have a critical mindset. When we see someone who's wealthy or someone who's successful, we go, well, you know how they got that. Well, you know what they're doing. Well, you know, you know how they, they, they cut corners. Well, you know. And do you know pastors do this? I've been tempted to do this. In fact, I have to be honest with you, I've done this. Another church is successful in the community, and what do we do? We start talking bad about it. Well, you know why so many people go there, don't you? They're not very deep. They're very shallow. We're deep over here. We're the deep Christians, the real Christians. Those are the shallow Christians. The only reason they go over there is because it's so watered down. Nobody ever confronts anything. We're the deep people over here, and yeah, there's a few of us. What is that? We're just looking for an edge of superiority to, to just prove that we're better than they are. Rather than saying, no, God could bless me, and he can bless them. God can bless us both, so we choose celebration. Scripture says we mourn with those who mourn. Many of us are good at doing that. We'll let you cry on our shoulder. We'll weep with you, but we are not so good at celebrating with those who celebrate. Scripture calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice. You want to be an abundance mindset, have a heart of generosity. you got to be willing to give when it doesn't mean you're getting blessed. Third thing is this. I practice. This is strategic wording. You learn to practice, practice worship instead of worry. Gratitude over worry. How many of you have lived long enough in your life to find out that life is basically just a never-ending series of opportunities to worry? Isn't that true? Just like the job market's changing, what's going on politically, what's happening in the world. There's just so much. And that's just talking about big macro events. Forget what's happening in your marriage, with your kids, you know, what's happening at your school, wherever you find yourself, there are opportunities to worry about everything. Worry is essentially faith in reverse. Worry is us using our God-given imagination our capacity to imagine a new day, a brighter future, a better tomorrow, to use that imagination to envision the worst, to think about what could happen, what might happen if this goes wrong, what could happen if that doesn't work out, what happens if that relationship doesn't pan out the way that I thought. And so many of us, we're using our God-giving gift of imagination not to think about how good God is and what God might do, to think about the possibilities of what God could do, but rather to think about what could happen negatively in our lives. And worship is that opportunity to say, God, I trust you. God, I put my confidence and my hope in you. I recognize that you're a God of abundance. You're a God who poured out your life for me, a God who's given so much to me that I can trust you with my tomorrow. I can trust you with the uncertainty of my situation. I can trust you with the difficulty of my marriage. I can trust you with my business that seems to be in decline. I can trust you, Lord, because you've been faithful to me in the past. I believe you'll be faithful to me in the future, that no matter what I walk through, as it says in Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. I'm not alone. 
And that's the God that we serve. A God of abundance. A God of generosity. A God who's given so much. I, uh, I grew up in Tulsa. Met my wife at Oral Roberts University, which is there in Tulsa. I don't know if you're familiar with ORU, but uh, it's a, a university there in the city. I didn't go to ORU. I hung around ORU. My brother went there because I wanted to find a wife, and it worked. But whenever I was going there uh, or hanging around there, um, I, I, was, I, I made friends with several of the guys on the basketball team. I love basketball, if you can't tell. And uh, uh, by the way, me and Pastor Josh just spent the whole ride yesterday on the way to uh, Ann Arbor just arguing. And honestly, I, I believe I won the argument that Michael Jordan is indeed the greatest basketball player over LeBron. I don't know if you, if you, if you feel me on this vertical church, but it's the truth. Jordan is the best. And anyway, so we talked, but, but I, I, I love basketball. I've become friends with the basketball players. And uh, so I became a huge fan of ORU basketball. And they were really good. I mean, they were packing out their arena. It was awesome. And I would go to these games, and I mean, I was just a rabid fan, but I never could figure out that on the basketball court was this phrase that apparently Oral Roberts had coined. And, and it said this down on, on the baseline. It said, expect a miracle. Yeah, which I thought was a little disrespectful to the basketball team. I mean, like, what are we trying to say here? You're playing basketball. Hey, I don't think we have any chance, but who knows? We might miraculously win tonight. And I, I couldn't wrap my head around that phrase and what it meant, but as I've gotten a little bit older and as I've understood where he was coming from, I see the meaning behind it. What does he mean? It means that we serve an infinite God. We serve a God who created the universe like with a word. We serve a God who holds everything together. That's the God that we serve. And yet we act like maybe he's incapable of acting in our lives that maybe God couldn't do or wouldn't do something on our behalf that God doesn't care or doesn't have time or just is too busy running the rest of the universe that your life doesn't matter to you. It's unreasonable not to expect God to act. If we really believe that's who God is, we ought to expect a miracle. We ought to expect God to act. We gotta expect God to move. That when God says trust him and take a step and give or sow into somebody or send a text or sit down and have a coffee or a lunch or open up and take a chance and share our faith with somebody that God is at work. God is doing so much more than we think he is. And if we'll just follow him and trust him, I believe we'll see his abundance work. Why? For his mission, for the expansion and furthering of the kingdom of God. God wants to use you, but he needs you to believe that he's abundant, that he can do far above all we could ask, think, or imagine because that's our God. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your generosity to us that you would come and become one of us. You didn't try to love us from a distance. You came and embraced us with all of our junk, all of our sin, all of our filth. You embraced us. You got down in the mess with us. That's the kind of God you are. Help us to trust you. Help us to see you. I pray, Lord, over these, this church, this congregation, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you for who you really are, to catch a picture of your radical, self-giving love, Father, Son, Spirit. Help us to get a glimpse of that so that we might be transformed and made 
into the image of your son, Jesus. We want to be more like him. We want that generosity in our lives. So help us, Father, to see you for who you are so that we can be that radical, generous people to build your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.